0: Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 today as we continue our study of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Last week we studied chapter 8 and we saw how God's people demonstrate their love for the Lord Jesus and for one another by being willing to give sacrificially to relieve the distress of one another. We saw how God's grace produces. A fruit of joy that overflows in generosity. It's, that's, the, that's the train. Grace produces joy which produces generosity. As Jesus has given himself to us, it proved, proves to be both the example and the motive for giving of ourselves away to one another. And as we come to chapter 10 this morning, Paul turns a little bit of a corner in the letter. You might remember that there was a group of so-called super-apostles. That was Paul's sarcastic term for them. They came into the church in Corinth attempting to disrupt Paul's preaching and disrupt the message of the gospel in the church. And they cast doubt on whether Paul was a genuine apostle because they said he's weak, he's powerless, he, he doesn't even charge money as a professional rhetorician. He didn't fulfill the culture's expectation of what an expert should do. He wasn't the flashy showman that the super apostles were and they managed to deceive some in that church and turn them away from the Lord Jesus, the crucified Lord Jesus. In chapter 10, Paul takes up his pen once more to defend his ministry but from a little bit of an unexpected angle rather than play their game of experience for experience or power for power, Paul suggests that God's power at work among a people doesn't quite look like the bombastic showman of the super apostles. But rather, God at work looks like the character of Jesus, alive in his people and among them as a body. What do we look for? as signs of God's divine power at work among us as a church? And how do we walk in His ways? 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Let's stop there. Father, we ask that by your power, you would send your spirit to open our eyes to this part of your wonderful word. We pray that you would enable us to see truth mixed together with humility in the way that we live before the watching world. In Christ's name, we ask it. Amen. Well, how do you successfully siege a castle? Now, in the Middle Ages, laying siege to a city or a town was relatively simple, even if it had walls, but attacking a castle was a little more difficult because castles had strongholds. They had a bulwark. They had extra fortified areas that were virtually impregnable. And some used this magnificent war machine of a trebuchet that would, would be a cantilevered arm that would sling rocks or sling metal against the walls and try to demolish them. But some castles could even withhold the mighty trebuchet. The strongholds or the the, the keeps were often like a nautilus that would be a series of ringed walls inside one another and the nobility would hide inside those and no weapons could get to them. What would you do to siege that part of the castle, the stronghold, the fortified area? Well, you had to go under. You had to dig a tunnel. Soldiers would dig tunnels under the castle and directly beneath the area where the stronghold was, they would create a bit of a cavern. They would dig an open space and pack it with flammable things, wood or sap or tar, oil, things like that, and they would set fire to it all. And as the fire grew hotter and hotter under the earth, the mortar of the stronghold grew weaker and the whole thing would collapse and they would be able to subvert the castle from underneath. A straight-out assault at times didn't work. Often it was the unexpected, unsung, humble, common means like fire underground that won the day. You had to go underneath to defeat the strongholds. In our text today, Paul uses similar language, warfare language, stronghold language. And make no mistake that as followers of Christ, we are engaged in a deep conflict. We're engaged in a war, really. But our war is not fought with the weapons of the flesh because our war is not against the flesh. There is a conflict between dark and light, between sin and righteousness, between the parasitic kingdom of the devil in this world and the kingdom of God. And when we misidentify the conflict, then we choose the wrong weapons with which to engage in the conflict. The weapons of the flesh are completely ineffective in this war for righteousness, this spiritual war for hearts, the war for our own hearts. And in this war, in order to win hearts, we don't use the tools or the machinery or the weaponry of the world. We use the unheralded tools of meekness and gentleness and humility and gospel promises. A straight-out assault often doesn't work. In order to win the hearts and lives, we have to go underneath. We have to go down with humility and gentleness. We misidentify the conflict, however. We will be seduced to use the wrong tools in our pursuit of life in this world. But what are these Weapons of the flesh that Paul talks about here, the ones that the super apostles charged him with, and we can see what these weapons that Paul are la- is labeling by the uh, the uh, accusations that the super apostles levy against him starts in verse one, where Paul uses his name. Now, I don't think anyone, if you read all the way to chapter ten, no one would forget that it was Paul who wrote the letter, right? There's another reason that he uses his name right here. And the reason is that in Greek, Paulus, his name literally means little. So he begins to repeat back to these super apostles the charges that they're leveling against him. He's using their words and beginning to mock them. It's like he's saying, I, little man, entreat you. He was little. They called him timid. They said he's not impressive to behold. He didn't cut an impressive figure and couldn't command a room like some larger men might. In verse 1, in continuing the sarcasm, the NIV even puts quotation marks around humble and bold because Paul's borrowing their language. They charge that he's bold when he writes letters to you, but he's cowardly when he's with you. He's unimpressive, they said. He's unexceptional. He's mediocre. He's humiliating. Just look at that man. Why would you follow someone like that? He's he's not a powerful leader. Take another look at him. He's a little man. He's timid. He even changes his travel plans all the time, they said. He's not dependable. He's not... Someone trained in rhetoric like we are, the super apostles would say. In chapter 10, he talks about they don't charge, he doesn't charge the large speaking fees that professionals do when ideas are worth listening to, like we do, they said. He's a tent maker for crying out loud. Why in the world would you listen to this little humiliated man with no power, no experiences, and inferior intellect? He uses terrible arguments. He even gets himself shipwrecked, you can see in chapter 10. He gets himself shipwrecked because he's so poor he can't buy a ticket on a decent ship. He has to ride in these dinky little ships, and they're always crashing. This man has no self-confidence. Why would you possibly listen to someone like that? They were charged. Sounds pretty similar to the way that we might evaluate leaders in our world, doesn't it? Sometimes we look for style, even when there's not substance to back it up. Sometimes we look for soundbite leadership. That really doesn't have much to it underneath. What the super-apostles were doing, all style and no substance. And on the one hand, Paul actually agrees with them. In chapter 10, a little bit later, and in chapter 11, he begins to lay out all the ways that he acknowledges that he's not impressive He's not the powerful one. Indeed, he does suffer. He does struggle. He is poor. He is weak. He doesn't charge for his services. And yet, Paul says, divine power is at work in the midst of his weakness. And that's what reveals God at work. Not by all of his style, but by the substance of the gospel being heard from his lips and seen in his life. He says in verse 3... We walk in the flesh, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. What he means by that is we live in this body. We live in this world that's broken and sinful. When we're, and we're tempted. We fall into sin where self-interest and self-confidence reigns in our world. But we don't use those weapons of the flesh in order to deal with the flesh. Let me put it another way. He's saying you can't use the, the tools of temptation and sin in self if you want to fight against temptation and sin in self. You see what he's saying? You can't use the tools of the flesh. You can't use bombastic pride to try to deal with your pride. You can't use self-interest to try to combat your self-interest. It doesn't work. If you're going to battle against those things of the flesh, the sins of the flesh, then you must use a different sort of weapon. You must deal with divine power, with spiritual life to combat the very real pull of our flesh. You can't fight pride in this world by being prideful, especially over our religion. You can't work against self-interest and self-confidence in this world by being showmen who are all about the flash with no substance like the super apostles were. You can't produce a community of grace by using the tools of humiliation and shame and ridicule. It doesn't work. You can't claim to speak for, verse 1, the meek and gentle Christ by selling a religious charisma void of the weakness of the crucified Christ. What Paul is saying is ultimately... We can't rely on the tools of this world, entertainment and pride and guilt and shame and ridicule or being ungracious. We can't use those tools if we seek spiritual change in ourselves or in others. We can't demand our way into having changed hearts and changed lives. It goes in this world, it goes for the way that we interact with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, with our children... We can't demand our way. We can't ridicule or shame our way into our children having changed hearts. We can't use the weapons of the flesh to deal with spiritual issues. We can't lean on pressure tactics of the world to produce graciousness in lives. The church can't lean on the power brokering of the world in order to see spiritual life and vitality in our world either. We as the church can't use the tools of shame and ridicule in order to get our point across if we hope that our points will actually be heard. Just as you can't stop the progress of a disease by putting on a finer suit, you can't stop the spread of sin sickness by dressing up on the outside. There has to be another power at work. There has to be another divine power to remake us from the inside out. The weapons of the flesh do not produce lasting change in ourselves, in the church, or in this world. Paul says to do that we must use the weapons of divine power. In fact, that power glitz and self-confidence of the super-apostles is contrary to the meekness and gentleness of the pathway of the divine work of Christ in this world. Strongholds are beaten down. Strongholds are broken down by lives that are characterized by Christ in us and among us. That's the power at work in the world. Meekness is that quality that belongs to the Lord Jesus that is willing to be disadvantaged for himself in order to give an advantage to someone else. So meekness is when we're willing to take it on the chin for self in order that someone else might have a blessing, someone else might have an advantage, someone else might receive goodness even if it costs us something. That's what meekness is. And the divine weapons that change the world are those gospel weapons like meekness and gentleness. When sinners are being transformed by the power of the Spirit of God to be more like Jesus, to live more like Jesus, and to communicate the message of Jesus in the manner of Jesus. That's what turns the world upside down. Not simply cleverly arranged arguments, but the truth together with the life of humility of Jesus alive in us. That's what turns the world upside down. Jesus is the one who said, I come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He willingly and meekly went to the cross to give his life in exchange for ours to serve us, to bless us and save us. He's the one who, as in a few minutes we'll recite from Philippians chapter 2, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A humiliating death in which he purposed to pursue our welfare at the cost of his own life. Meekness And gentleness of Jesus are where the weapons of divine power begin. But how does that connect? How does Paul connect that meekness and gentleness in verse 1 with destroying strongholds and destroying arguments down in verses 4 and 5? How do those two things work together? Well, again, the solution has to fit the problem. You can't use the world's tactics to solve a problem of spiritual death and sin you can't attack a stronghold straight away you must go underneath in humility and meekness with gentleness not by the force of power the force of our personality but with the gospel at work how does paul mean that well look at verse five again he says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god but the situation may not be exactly as it sounds to us. Paul's not painting a picture of people sitting around arguing about ideas and saying which one comes out on top. He's not describing a battle of the wits and the Christian ideas always win. That's not what he's talking about. Literally what he says in verse 5, a very wooden translation is this. Reasoning we destroy. Even every arrogance raised against the personal knowledge of God. In other words, the fortress or the bulwark or the stronghold that is destroyed is the heart of arrogance that's raised in opposition to the meek and gentle Christ. What Paul is talking about is heart change that produces a different mind, taking captive not just ideas but minds that are opposed to God. And you don't get there by simply arguing your way into change. Because our hearts are dead in sin, he says in Ephesians 5. But what Paul lays out for us is the gospel weapon of the humility of the cross undoes proud and arrogant hearts. That's what he's saying. The humility of the Lord Jesus, the meek one, the gentle one, who went to the cross for us in that humility, that undoes our proud and our arrogant hearts that set our lives up in opposition to the Lord. Because, friends, when we are forced to realize our own pride, our own self-centeredness, when the Lord Jesus came to us in free and boundless love and grace and He saved us when we were rebels, when we were still in sin, if He loved us in our arrogance that way, then it shapes the way that we pursue other sinners in humility and meekness. We approach one another in the same way that Jesus has approached us in humility, and gentleness. That humble Christ, gentle and meek enough to go to the cross for proud people like us, has the power to remake minds and capture hearts for His glory. The weapon of divine power to tear down strongholds is the power of the Spirit of Christ to make the spiritually dead alive again. He's the one who changes hearts He builds churches, and he uses weak servants like Paul and like you and me to go about it. It is the divine power that Paul speaks of because the power all belongs to God. It's not merely in having better theology or better ideas or better arguments to tear down strongholds. Rather, what Paul is saying is we need better ideas and better theology married together with hearts of people who know their need for grace. Hearts of people who know that they were once the ones who were arrogant, who have been captured by the love and the grace and the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. Truth and humility together is what brings change in the world. Because the weapon that we have is to herald that gospel of Jesus. As Paul said in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we serve as those heralds of the gospel we live as meek and gentle agents in the manner of gospel living like Lord the Lord Jesus and as we do that the Holy Spirit uses his creative work his like the work of creation to bring dead hearts to life did you see that the same work that brought light out of darkness that's the work of creation is the same spirit that works to bring life out of dead hearts like ours He is the one who demolished his strongholds by making dead hearts alive. And it's his power at work within us that makes the castle set up against him in arrogance to fall. Ideas and Christian thought is vital. Yet when done from a heart that is captured by God's grace, it changes the world. Grace changes everything. Truth and grace together change everything. And you and I have the privilege of simply being servants, meek and gentle servants called to proclaim the truth, live in humility, and pray for his work. So why again do we feel like we must have the power to save our neighbors as if it rests on our shoulders? Why again do we feel like we have to have all the proper and best answers to save our nation? As if, if we just get it right, if we elect the right person, if we pull the right lever of power, as if it all depended upon us using the power and the weapons of the world. It doesn't. It's truth married together with humility that begins to bring renewal in life into a culture. Not simply pulling the levers of power. Why do we feel like that if we shout the loudest, then our culture will turn to godliness? If what Paul says is true, that we are dead in our sin, if what Paul says is true, that our lives are set up as strongholds in our hearts in arrogance against the Lord, if that's the problem in our hearts, in our city, and in our world, then the only place where we have hope for life is is before a holy Jesus who made himself a servant to go to the cross for us. And all of our showmanship and entertainment and power and experiences and professionalism and marketing plans and pulling the levers of power, none of that is going to bring lasting change without the divine power that is at work among his people. Yes, as verse 5 calls us, we take minds captive to obedience of Christ, but it isn't simply a matter of producing better arguments or being more cleverly argumentative. But instead, it's through a change of heart. Having our arrogance nailed to the cross so that we, the formerly arrogant, the formerly opposed to God, are being transformed into the meek and the gentle, just as Christ is. Our arguments and the truth has power in part because our lives are evidence of the power of the cross. Better ideas, better theology, yes, but not merely better ideas and better thoughts. What changes the world are better ideas wed together to the character of Christ. That's what makes an impact in the world. So as we long for change in ourselves. As we look for change in our city, change in our nation, what are the tools that we have? We have the gospel tools of divine power. The truth of the word, prayer, fellowship, the humility that we know as the Lord Jesus is alive and at work among us. Straight out assault in our world is not going to win. Yelling louder is not going to change the world. Yet living clearly with meekness and gentleness of christ before a watching world will begin to bring change castles and strongholds go down when we're willing to go underneath in humility patience and gentleness to destroy the strongholds you have to go underneath and that is truth married to a life of humility But what does the world see when it looks at us? Does it see those two things together? Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would make us indeed not only a people of truth, but a people of humility. That you would make us a people who understand and have a a, a solid Christian worldview and understand how your world is made. May we never back away from that truth of how you've made this world to be and what enables us to thrive as creatures. And yet, as we hang on to the truth, may our hearts and our lives be captivated by the meekness and gentleness of the Lord Jesus. May His character be alive and at work among us by the power of Your Spirit so that the world sees truth and humility together. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.